Welcome to the show. Son of bitch. Welcome to show. I don't think I'm allowed to do that accent anymore. <laughs> I think that one was banned roughly five years ago. All right, I'll stop, even though I would like to do the entire show in that accent. How's everybody doing today? How is everybody doing today? Got a, a full schedule for y'all. Um, a lot of interesting stories, a lot of slightly different stories, uh, kind of off the beaten path, off the beaten track. Um, got Jen Psaki, a Republican civil war that's unfolding right in front of our eyes. Uh, Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul hold hands and sing Kumbaya in a touching moment. We have a psycho senator uh, calling for World War III. CNN's Jake Tapper ripped into Hollywood and the NBA and billionaires for their business dealings with China. We'll talk about that. We got Elon Musk in the show. Tom Cotton uh, goes ultimate snowflake mode. Um, And a lot more. A lot more stuff. So without further ado, let's go ahead and get started and jump right into it. And uh, I want to do that with the big story everybody was talking about a day or two ago, uh, namely Jen Psaki and uh, the Psaki bomb, bro. That's what all the liberals were. We're calling her, or every time she flapped down some question, they were like, amazing, Saki bomb, you're incredible, be my mommy. All right, anyway, let's go ahead and jump into it. So Jen Saki, uh, the absolute hero of partisan Democrats and liberals, they like to, whenever she responds to a question in a pithy way, they like to go, Saki bomb, bro, we love you so much, be my mommy, please. Uh, she responded to maybe one of the only decent questions that you see from some of the reporters in the room um, at these uh, White House press secretary uh, meetings. And this went viral because of how dismissive she was of a perfectly reasonable idea. Take a look. Whoops. Sound off. The size of our testing plant. Look at what we've done over the course of time. We've quadrupled the size of our testing plan. We've cut the cost significantly over the past few months. And this effort to, uh, to, push, uh, to ensure insurers are, you're able to get your, your test uh, refunded means 150 million Americans will be able to get free tests. Why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Maybe. Then, then, what ha- then what happens if, you, if every American has one test? How much does that cost, and then what happens after that? Now, all I know is that other countries seem to be making them available for, in greater quantities for less money. Well, I think we share the same objective, which is to make them less expensive and more accessible, right? Amazing. Less expensive and more accessible. That's what she says at the end. What does that remind you of? when they talk about healthcare. These are the weasel words about healthcare that I've always warned you about. We need to expand access to affordable healthcare. Why did you put in like three qualifiers there? Well, the answer is simple, because what they're trying to say is not free, definitely not free, definitely not free at the point of service, definitely not funded by taxes. Don't get your hopes up too high. That's what they're doing. Now she's doing the same thing on tests. Now notice a massive contradiction. She starts out by mocking the idea, and then at the end she tries to be like, oh, no, totally, we're totally, we have the same goal as the other countries. Well, obviously you don't, because you just mock the idea of free COVID tests when other developed countries are giving out free COVID tests. Uh, I don't know if you guys know this. It's the middle of a pandemic. 
And in the middle of a pandemic, it would be nice if the government was actively doing things that would help mitigate the fucking pandemic. Totally dismissive. Now, just to give you an extent of how pathetic we are, um, in the UK, you can order seven free tests per day. You order them and have them delivered a day later. And what was her response when asked about, by the way, see, and this is a bigger takeaway from this is, this is why you need a good media. This was like one of very few examples of the media actually holding the government accountable. The question was like, why not just make them free and give them out to all Americans? And her response was, should we just send one to every American? You, you, they're under the dictionary definition of smug. There's a picture of her face when she said that. Would you send one free to every American? And the response is my favorite. Maybe. Like, yeah, of course we fucking should. Who are you kidding? And then her rebuttal after that is, well, how much does that cost? And what happens after that? I don't know if you guys know this. We just farted and added another, what, $80 billion to the military budget? And nobody said a goddamn word about how much it's, uh, how are we going to pay for it and how expensive it is and can we afford it? But here we're talking about something that is likely way cheaper. And they're, uh, they're like, how much does that cost? And what happens after that? Guys, this is what happens. This is neoliberal rot in action. It's this notion that the government can't do anything and shouldn't do anything, and then over time, that even stifles the imagination as to what it's possible for the government to do. Because a lot of the things that we fight over in this country as like, how are you going to pay for that, are things that virtually every other developed country already has and has figured out. And there's this giant contradiction where people like to say, we're number one in the world, bro. And then they turn around and go, but we also can't do those very basic things that other industrialized countries do. What? We, if we wanted to, it, we absolutely could do free college. We absolutely could do free health care. Now, by the way, I know any you know, people who lean right listen, listening to this and they go, well, there's nothing free, bro. You know what I'm saying. You know how taxes work. It's called free at the point of service. In this country, what do our taxes go towards? Endless war and trillion-dollar bailouts for Wall Street, all we're talking about on the left is instead of spending our money on endless war and trillion-dollar bailouts for Wall Street, how about people, the government takes our tax money and actually does stuff that we like with it? And these are things that we do like according to the polling, whether it's free health care or free college or what have you. Universal tests. I've never seen a poll on this uh, for Americans, but go ahead and poll them, and I'd love to see what the results are. You know, I mean, people get COVID healthcare bills in this country, tens of thousands of dollars worth. We had one little taste of, uh, you know, universal healthcare and the boogeyman socialized medicine in this country, and everybody creamed themselves over it, namely the uh, free vaccine. You know, what, what are we at now? 70-ish percent of the country uh, is vaccinated with the free vaccine. And I don't know about you guys, but I had a wonderful experience because I, you walk right in. Now, I don't know why they ask to see your insurance card. They shouldn't. But you walk right in, you show it, and they're like, okay, do, and then that's it, and you're done, and, you're like, and you leave. 
zero dollars and zero cents. Now, most people I talk to are like, why doesn't everything work like that? Yeah, why doesn't everything work like that? And the response from the elites are, this is a deadly pandemic, so it's different. It's not like other health issues, which are not deadly. What? (laughs) So many of them are deadly. I, I mean, it's just obscene. This is obscene. In the UK, you can get seven tests per day for free. And in the U.S., we are mocking the idea of sending one test to every American. The thing that gives me life out of that clip is the earned condescension of the reporter. I wish I had uh, the name to give credit to that reporter because that was fantastic. Why don't we just make them free and give them to everybody? What, do you want to send one to every American? And the response is, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And more than one, actually. How much does that cost and what happens after that? Uh, How much it costs is nothing compared to the ridiculous amount of money we waste on wars and Wall Street bailouts. And what happens after that is people have fucking tests and they'll know if they get COVID and then they'll be able to stay home and mitigate it more effectively. And that's a wonderful thing. No, but we see, we, I, when I was mocking the idea, I didn't mean to mock the idea. What I meant to say was that we share the same goal of increasing access to affordability and whatnot. <laughs> if the media does a good job, like you saw here, exposes the system for the farce that it is, and it gets more people to come to correct conclusions. You know, and uh, I just wish we saw this on every front. I wish we saw this when it comes to um, illegal and offensive wars in this country. Unfortunately, we don't. Usually the media manufactures consent and is on the side of the establishment. I hope, I wish we saw this about the financial system. We don't. I wish we saw this about taxes. We don't. I wish we saw this about corruption. We don't. But this is a rare issue where you realize, oh, a good media is really important to hold powerful people accountable. Look, it used to be the case that, especially when it came to campaign reporting, this is a point that Matt Taibbi has made. It used to be the case that um, you would have the reporters who would cover a campaign, they would sit in the back of the plane as the politician sitting in the front of the plane, and they would look for facts and information and to show the public what these people are doing. And generally the mindset was like, these people are all assholes and I'm going to expose them. And then in today's day and age, they're more partisan sycophantic reporters, whether it's Fox News for Trump and Republicans or CNN and MSNBC for Democrats. And so truth doesn't come into the equation. A mindset of like, let me give people information doesn't come into the equation. Uh, Being harsh but fair doesn't come into the equation. Well, here we get a rare taste of what it's like if we had a functional press. And that was lovely. That's the way it should be. You made her look like an idiot because this is an idiotic response. Now, by the way, um, some of the responses on Twitter, from uh, partisan Democrats and liberals is terrifying. Because they actually start doing the mental gymnastics and the rationalizations and the justifications to back up Saki's point, because these are people who don't care about policy more than uh, personas. They care more about the personas and the partisan tribalism. And so, since she made this argument, they're going to back her up. Saddest, most mega-cucked mindset I've ever seen in my entire life. Ever. The answer is yes, send out free tests. I'll go a step further. The answer is yes, Joe Biden, sign an executive order that gives everybody health care 
during the pandemic for free. There you go. And he has the authority to do that. Part of the Social Security Act, part of Obamacare, there's a provision of um, under an emergency, you could basically give free health care to whoever. So he could do it. He's choosing not to do it. And my guess is if we were even to start having the conversation, Jen Psaki would be like, do you just want to give people free health care at the point of service? Yeah. Yeah, I do. And I'm correct. And you're wrong. All right, next. I got a million Chris Cuomo stories over the past three, four days. Three, four shows, I should say. But he's back. Guess who's back? Back again. I don't want to keep talking about Chris Cuomo. He's supposed to be going, going, gonzo, son. Um, But... He's lingering. And this story may be the funniest story of all the stories over the past week or two. Take a look. It's from New York Post. Fired CNN host Chris Cuomo is set to sue the network if it balks at paying him at least $18 million to cover what's left on his contract, sources told the Post on Monday. Cuomo, 51 years old, has hired lawyers and is preparing to file the lawsuit over the remainder of the four-year contract he signed last year after a bitter back and forth about what the network knew of his secret efforts to aid his embattled brother, then-Governor Andrew Cuomo, said sources familiar with the matter. His contract was reportedly worth $6 million annually. That's what he was getting paid, leaving between $18 million and $20 million that he would be owed, sources said, adding that Chris Cuomo would also likely seek damages. Damages! That's, that's glorious. But CNN has no intention of paying Chris Cuomo a penny, as inside, an insider said. If he gets a settlement, there would be uproar, the source added. Another source said CNN has a standard morality clause in their contract that says if the employee does anything of disrepute, they can be immediately fired. There's a few things to say about this. First of all, look, those contracts, I'm sure, are airtight with CNN. You don't have a big organization like CNN that doesn't cover their own ass first and foremost, and I'm sure that's exactly what happened here with Chris Cuomo. Um, The damages point is the funniest to me. I need to seek damages because this is unfair what happened to me. Dog, you're a hack. I don't know if you know this, but you had on your brother on the show all the time to do rank propaganda for him as he was doing one of the worst jobs as governor in the country. And that is not hyperbole. This is a guy who was writing a book about how he defeated COVID and how he's a hero and getting million, uh, millions of dollars in a book advance for it. At the same time, he was shuffling old people COVID positive, back into nursing homes, which then in turn led to countless deaths. And then in turn, he covered up a lot of those deaths and lowered the numbers on it. And don't even get me started on the other scandals, which existed before he even went on the CNN show and got these fluff pieces. Um, The scandal, for example, of corruption. He set up an anti-corruption committee. That committee eventually turned their guns on on Andrew Cuomo because he was being corrupt. And then he disbanded the committee as soon as they started looking into him and his buddies. One of his top aides went down for corruption. There was the bridge scandal where he used the wrong supplies on this bridge that was named after his father and then tried to cover it up, even though it would have been a health issue, safety issue. I mean, the number of scandals is staggering. 
and he would go on CNN, and him and Chris Cuomo would play around and giggle about mom's spaghetti and Sunday dinners and hold giant Q-tips for no reasons and, and for no reason. And he would, you know, portray him as America's best governor. He literally said on air something to that effect, like, I think you're the best governor in America. And then the second the shit hit the fan, all of a sudden Chris Cuomo's like, look, I got to be objective. I can't talk about my brother. You had to be objective before you gave him the fluff jobs, you dick. So the reason why you got to go is because you're not a reporter. You're supposed to be a reporter. You're supposed to be a journalist. You got to go. Now, the only argument I'm sympathetic to is that, yeah, but like Brian Stelter is not a reporter either. He's still on the air. Right. Well, get him off the air, too. To me, this isn't a free speech issue. If you're hired to be a journalist or a reporter, you have to be a journalist or a reporter. They should fire every fucking so-called journalist or reporter at Fox News because they're all gigantic hacks and they all suck at their fucking job. So, you know, I don't just have guns out for Chris Cuomo specifically. I fire all of them. Fact of the matter is, he's got to go. And he's talking about damages. You, I mean, CNN, in their own mind, had a modicum of credibility, and then you just shit all over that. And so if anything, they could sue your ass for damages to say, look, we were viewed as like a legitimate news source, and then now you made it so that we had to, you know, violate all of our, uh, you know, journalistic integrity. They didn't actually have it, but in their own mind they did. So in their mind, they could claim he's the one who sort of dragged them through the mud because they stuck with him originally when they learned that when everybody learned that Chris Cuomo was helping Andrew Cuomo um, during the scandal of all the Me Too stuff and the sexual harassment allegations against him. And then what happened is we learned that he was more intimately involved and he was using his sources to try to dig up dirt and do oppo research on the women who were accusing Andrew Cuomo. And as soon as CNN learned that, they were like, okay, we got to let him, we got to indefinitely suspend him. Then they finally let him go and fired him when they realized there was a Me Too allegation against Chris Cuomo as well. They were like, okay, look, there's too much of a headache. We got to let it go. But Chris Cuomo is saying, I'm going to sue CNN for damages. On what planet? You got $6 million a year from them. You ain't worth $6 million a year. Dog, you're not worth $600 a year. By the way, let's go, baby. Sink or swim. You want to see how good you are in this media space? Hop into the new media world. Look, you can cultivate your own audience. You can be in, you know, totally independent. Go ahead. Hop onto YouTube or, or Substack or start a podcast or whatever. Pick any platform you like. Twitch. But... Try it. Let's see how it goes. It, it goes back to the same thing. I, I always used to beat up on Wolf Blitzer. <laughs> Not on purpose, but he's a good example of this. Guys, it, there is there's a system that filters and props up the safe voices for the narrative. That's how CNN functions. And so there's a reason why Wolf Blitzer is on air 714 hours a day, because he's not going to rock the boat. He's not going to say anything that advertisers in the establishment don't want to hear. And so he's propped up there. Now I submit to you, if Wolf Blitzer launched a YouTube channel, how would he do? In the sink or swim environment, how would he do? Actually, you know what? I think I need to adjust my, um, my argument here because the fact of the matter is the way the YouTube algorithm works, he'd get propped up. <laughs> They'd prop him up and he'd find a way to get like a million subscribers because in the past when it was a more fair merit-based algorithm, he would have had like seven subscribers and nobody would have listened to a goddamn word he said. But now the way it works, where they prop up authoritative sources, uh, YouTube would probably do a special deal with him and pay him a salary and get him to a million subscribers within a year. So maybe I, I have to adjust my argument now. But yeah, I mean, there's still space in the media world, but you got to do it on your own. Instead, he's begging for a handout, $6 million a year for not doing Dickie McGee's acts and doing a horrible job on air at CNN. Damages. $18 million in damages. The only reason you were even on air to begin with is nepotism. Your dad was governor of New York, Mario Cuomo, 
Andrew, uh, your brother was governor of New York, and you're male Megan McCain, Chris. That's the only reason why you're on air in the first place, and this guy acts entitled. I earned my way on air to do a shitty job the entire time I was there. By the way, he got the best ratings at CNN, which says, what about CNN? It's abysmal and pathetic. This meathead got the best, the best ratings on CNN. Oh, God. By the way, Don Lemon hasn't said a word. Since <laughs> Chris Cuomo, he would call him just my brother, and they would have this banter on air all, every night. And now Don Lemon, he's gone. I mean, that's the cutthroat, dumbass world that these guys live in. Um, $18 million in damages. Look, I'm, I'm no fan of CNN. I despise CNN, but you got to side with them on this one. Damages. Fuck out of here, Chris Cuomo. Hold the L, dog. Hold the L. All right, next. Oh, this one's fun. I like this one. There is a Republican civil war erupting. There is a Republican civil war going off ski right now. So um, Dan Crenshaw is a congressman who has been trying to make his way into the spotlight. He's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a few times. Um, He tries to, like, shitpost online, and he's just not popping off that much. He's not. And if I'm being ruthlessly honest here, um, personality's not that great. He's not that charismatic. And, I mean, his arguments are abysmal. I watched one of the uh, Rogan podcasts he was on. and He's just a doctrinaire, down-the-line, right-wing policy guy. He's Ben Shapiro with an eye patch. Former veteran, I think, lost his eye in war or something. Um... Just totally uninteresting and stale to me. He is. I'm, I'm just being honest with you guys. So, uh, but he was at this event. Uh, I guess he's trying to help out other uh, congressional candidates, Republican congressional candidates. And um, he was asked some question, and he goes off here. He erupts. He, in no uncertain terms, is uh, condemning the likes of Marjorie Taylor Greene and Matt Gates and Jim Jordan and uh, Paul Gosar. He's calling them grifters, and he's calling them performance artists. Watch this.
not true. It's not true. We have grifters in our midst. Not here, not like in this room. That's not what I mean. I mean in the conservative movement. Lie after lie after lie because they know something psychologically about the conservative heart. We're worried about what people are going to do to us, what they're going to infringe upon us. Damn. Shots fired. So let me break this down a little bit. I Is he correct? Is he correct that, like, look, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, like, these people are just grifters. The, the Freedom Caucus. That, that used to be the Tea Party Caucus. They changed their name to the Freedom Caucus. Are they just, quote-unquote, grifters? Look, I don't know. It, you have, first of all, you have to evaluate on a case-by-case basis. You can't just say everybody in the Freedom Caucus is a grifter. I'm sure there are plenty of people in there who are true Kool-Aid drinkers and they really believe it like everything they're saying. So I don't know. You would have to evaluate each one on a case-by-case basis. But what I will say is your default assumption should be they're not until proven otherwise. Your default assumption should be, look, they believe what they're saying and they believe what they're doing. Um, So that is my default assumption. Now, I wouldn't be surprised in the slightest if evidence emerges that Marjorie Taylor Greene or Lauren Boebert specifically, if like they are grifters, because clearly they care a lot about the spotlight, they care a lot about the PR, they care a lot about the marketing, they care a lot about appearing the most Trumpy. Um, but listen, so does Dan Crenshaw, you know? So is he a grifter? Dan, are you a grifter? Serious question. So my general uh, breakdown on this is, I don't know who is and isn't a grifter, but Dan Crenshaw doesn't either, and I haven't really seen compelling evidence one way or the other so my default assumption is that most of them really believe what they're saying, um, but my instinct and inclination is that the ones who are the loudest and most annoying and most ridiculous are perhaps are grifters. So let me give you an example. There's this guy, Greg Kelly, who has a show either on Newsmax or One American News Network, and he tries to act like Trump on Twitter, and it's a total act. There's no, it's 100% an act because he is the most ridiculous over-the-top character I've ever seen in my life, and I find it almost inconceivable that any human being can really act that way uh, in that sort of a position. And so for him, I'm sort of convinced he's a grifter. I've heard stories uh, from behind the scenes, people who are in media, that talk about Sean Hannity, where Sean Hannity goes up to MSNBC hosts at whatever cocktail events, and he's like, yeah, you know, we're all friends. It's all just part of the game, right? So Hannity, you know, it's fair to say, he's a grifter. He's playing a role. He's an actor. Um, so it, Dave Rubin, he doesn't believe a goddamn word of what he said. He changed 100% of his ideology over the course of like three years. That doesn't happen with people in their fucking 30s or 40s, whatever the fuck he is. You know? And it doesn't happen, especially when he's clearly trying to find a niche. He wasn't popping off on the left, so he's like, how do I find a lane to get more famous? All he cares about is getting famous. I had a conversation with him myself where he was like, so what's your end goal, TV? I was like, what are you, like, what are you talking about? No, I like what I'm doing, and I'm going to keep what I'm doing what I'm doing. This was back when he was with the TYT Network. So there are some, I'm comfortable saying, grifter, but my default assumption is not a grifter until proven otherwise. And, you know, I think I have a reasonable standard and bar of evidence. Um, so I'm not convinced they're necessarily grifters. What I am convinced of is that Dan Crenshaw is jealous. That I'm definitely convinced of because he's been trying so hard. It, getting buddy-buddy with Rogan, getting on his podcast, um, you know, he re- released a bunch of, like, goofy ads that make him some sort of like, you know, action movie hero type thing. And 
And by the way, I hate the, the content of his argument, too. He's like, who voted with Trump the most? Adding Adam Kinziger, 99%. Who voted with them the least? A lot of those Freedom Caucus people. But notice, notice the terms there. Notice the criteria there. His argument is, the more you vote with Trump, the better. And the more you vote with Trump, the more definitionally conservative you are. First of all, the more you vote with Trump, not necessarily the better. Second of all, that is not doctrinaire conservatism per se. You know, there are plenty of areas where Trump bucked conservative trends. The First Step Act, one of the best things he ever did. That was bucking conservative trends and a conservative ideology. Um, Axing TPP. Now, we slipped a lot of the provisions of TPP into the new NAFTA, but axing TPP in and of itself was not a a conservative idea. And so there's an argument that some of the people who voted uh, less with him are more conservative, depending on these specific issues. So... um, I looked up, because as he was talking, I was like, I wonder if this is even true. So I looked up some of the voting records of uh, these folks that he's acting are like, they're not even conservative enough, bro. So Jim Jordan, I think he's the head of the Freedom Caucus. What is his career voting record and how it aligns with Trump? 88.7%. 88.7%. That's still very Trumpy. In the 117th Congress, 100% voted with Trump. In the 116th Congress, 92.1% voted with Trump. Um, let, let's give another example. Matt Gates. Matt Gates' career, how much he voted with Trump? 85%. Uh, in the 117th Congress, 100%. In the 116th Congress, 89%. So uh, o- over these like pretty minor differences, he's calling them grifters and performance artists. Now, look, they get more press than him, and they are more loud than him, and arguably more annoying than him, although I think they're roughly equally annoying. Um, I really think what this comes down to is he's bitter and he's jealous because they're getting more press and he's not. Look, I got no love at all for Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, Matt Gates, whoever. I think they're horrendous for the country. Paul Gosar, all these people, terrible. Um, but Dan Crenshaw is just as bad. He's just not as popular, but he has roughly the same ideology and he's wrong about everything. So if he's bragging, you know, if he's attacking them over the tiny policy difference here and he's calling them grifters, well, then he's just mad at, like, the antics. And the reason he's mad at the antics is because they're getting press and he's not. So, look, ultimately, I got to side more with the, the freaks than with Dan Crenshaw because I really do think this stems from jealousy and bitterness. He wants to be the one getting the attention. He wants to be the one who launches himself into some sort of future run for president, but... You know, the crazier these people act, the more antics they have, the more media they get, and then there's the backlash effect from the conservative base that they love these people more because liberal media is attacking those people. He wants that dynamic, and he's not really getting it because he's kind of boring and uncharismatic. So there you have it, GOP civil war. Listen, man, uh, it's, uh, it's sort of refreshing to see. Why is it refreshing to see? Usually it's the left that are at each other's throats everybody ripping out everybody else's jugular. I mean, how many internal left-wing fights have there been over the past, like, two or three years, especially since, since Bernie lost and dropped out? I mean, it's just been the left only attacks the left, like, all the time. And so here you have uh, Republican Congress people who are now getting in on some of that, and I'd rather see them duke it out than see, uh, you know, nominal friends on the left going at it, so... Not a terrible thing, if you ask me.
So the Biden administration um, announced a long time ago, we're not going to sell offensive weapons anymore to Saudi Arabia because we see what they're doing in Yemen. It's messed up. Um, And this was nothing but a PR move because they turned around and said, but we are going to sell defensive weapons to them. Defensive weapons, but Saudi Arabia is the aggressor in Yemen. Yemen had internal problems. There was a coup of the Shia Houthis overthrowing the Sunni government. The Saudi Arabia was aligned with the Sunni government. And so when the Shias took over, they were like, eh, eh, not allowing it. And so they intervened into something that had nothing to do with them. And they've been bombing schools and hospitals and open-air markets. And uh, they killed, I think, over 200,000 people are dead because of the genocide in Yemen. Between famine from the blockade, starvation, lack of medicine, bombing campaigns. So... It's bullshit to make a distinction, defensive versus offensive weapons. Saudi Arabia is the aggressor, full stop. So they were lying with what they were saying, uh, but now they want to they sell another $650 million in weapons to Saudi Arabia. Um, well, there are some people who are trying to stop that, namely Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul leading the way. They had this amazing moment on the Senate floor. And we are complicit. We are arming the Saudis and allowing this to happen. Offensive, defensive, they shouldn't get any of our weapons. We should stop selling them any weapons until they stop starving the country of Yemen. President, I I find myself in the somewhat uncomfortable and unusual uh, position uh, of agreeing with Senator Paul. True. (laughs) True. Look, no, I mean, this is something we've talked about for a long time on this show. Um, There's actually quite a bit of agreement between actual libertarians and progressives slash social democrats slash socialists uh, on many, many social issues and civil liberties issues. So actual libertarians are against the illegal NSA spying. They're against the torture. Foreign policy is another area. They're against all the uh, offensive wars. Um, They're against the drug war. So these are areas where this is how politics is done right, where you have to form coalitions with people who disagree with you on specific issues so that on those specific issues you can have total agreement among progressives, let's say, and then you, you clip off another five or six people who are libertarian or libertarian-ish, and then that's how you build a winning coalition to actually get stuff done. So, look, this is politics at its best. Now, unfortunately, there's also the other dynamic because bipartisanship isn't inherently good. This is the mistake that the media makes a lot. They pretend like bipartisanship is inherently good. No, because then you also have, you know, like Joe Manchin uh, and Bob Menendez, Democratic senators, might team up with Mitt Romney and Chuck Grassley to deregulate Wall Street. And that's bipartisanship, too. So point is, it always depends on the content and the substance of the bipartisanship in question. And oftentimes there's a bipartisan agreement to keep screwing Americans or bipartisan agreement to keep doing more wars. This is a bipartisan Um, you know, deal to try to do the right thing and not arm a murderous authoritarian theocracy that beheads people in the public square for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy and adultery. Okay? They're committing a genocide in Yemen. There is no, well, defensive weapons. Imagine, here's how you know this is ridiculous. Imagine uh, talking about it like that for Iran or any official enemy baddie state. There's uh, Senator Chris Murphy who is posturing his I'm anti-Saudi Arabia all this time, he is on the other side of this issue. He's like, it's defensive weapons, bro. Okay, imagine any uh, anti-Iran 
senator being like, look, if I'm against Iran, but if we're going to sell them defensive weapons, because the way, in, the way it works in their mind is this. Anybody who's our ally is definitionally acting defensive. Anybody who's an enemy is definitionally offensive. It's lazy, sloppy, stupid thinking, and it's all to serve the military-industrial complex because all the senators who voted the wrong way on this take colossal donations from Raytheon, Boeing, Lockheed Martin, Honeywell, and all of them, and they're doing their bidding. So that's at the heart of this. The media is never going to tell you that, but I'm going to tell you that. Uh, now, would you like to know the result of this? 67 votes against Rand Paul and Bernie Sanders. 67 votes in favor of arming a repressive authoritarian theocracy. Only 30 votes on the proper side of this issue. The inevitable conclusion is the Senate. Look, the way the Senate works, it is by definition undemocratic. Wyoming gets two senators and California gets two senators. The population of California is roughly 7 trillion. The population of Wyoming is six people. It's definitionally undemocratic. I get it. The founder set it up like that at the time. This is the way you keep everything together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Done with it. It's undemocratic. It's where good legislation generally goes to die. And you couldn't even get a majority against us aiding and abetting a genocide, killing babies, women, civilians. Couldn't even get a majority against that. 67 to 30. The pro-genocide position overwhelmingly won. Abolish the Senate. Abolish the Senate. Look, that's not the end-all, be-all. The House is more Democratic, small-d Democratic, um, but it's a start. It's a start. I would abolish the Senate. I would get rid of the Senate in a heartbeat. Um, and the other thing you've got to do, obviously you have to get the money out of the system because the, the only reason they're doing this is because of those donations from the military-industrial complex, and they're taking their marching orders from the military-industrial complex. And I think the reason why Biden spearheaded this, this, uh, this idea of arming them is because Biden pissed off um, Mohammed bin Salman, the Saudi crown prince, when he said, I'm not going to meet with you because of what happened to Jamal Khashoggi. He took offense to that, and then in turn, he massively reduced the supply of oil, therefore jacking up the price. And so we have those high gas prices. And Biden panicked. He didn't know what to do. So he acquiesced to Saudi Arabia. And now he's doing a gesture of goodwill. Hey, my bad. When I said this thing about Jamal Khashoggi and how I don't want to meet with you, what if I give you more weapons? Can you relax then? And can you stop reducing the oil flow then? That's probably what's going on here. Again, this is stuff the media won't tell you, but this is what's going on behind the scenes. There's reporting on all this. Print Outlet does a good job. TV does a horrendous job. Um, Print Outlet, I should say. So that's where we are. 67 senators pro-genocide. Wonderful. Democrats currently have a five-alarm fire on their hands. Um, We covered a poll the other day. Young people are like, I'm done with you. Bernie has a plus 12 approval rating. Everybody else is barely treading water. Biden was like plus two. The young people are a democratic necessity. You have to win young people and in big numbers in order to win elections. 
Well, they can't. Bernie is the only one who can, plus 12 with young people. Biden's at plus two. Kamala's underwater. Pete's underwater. So Democrats are in trouble. They lost their base in, in that respect. You know who else they're losing that was a strong part of the base? Hispanics. So having said that, there's this new poll that just came out in Politico. Take a look at this. Only 2% of those polled referred to themselves as Latinx, while 68% called themselves Hispanic and 21% favored Latino or Latina to describe their ethnic background, according to the survey from Ben Dixon and Amandi International, a top Democratic firm specializing in Latino outreach. More problematic for Democrats, get this, 40% said Latinx bothers or offends them to some degree, and 30% said they would be less likely to support a politician or organization that uses the term. At a time when Republicans appear to be making inroads among Latino voters, the survey results raise questions about how effectively the party is communicating with them, according to pollster Fernand Amandi and other Democrats and Latino vote experts. Quote, the numbers suggest that using Latinx is a violation of the political Hippocratic oath, which which is to first do no electoral harm said Amandi, whose firm advised Barack Obama's successful Hispanic outreach nationwide in his two presidential campaigns, why are we using a word that is preferred by only 2% but offends as many as 40% of those voters we want to win? Look, here's what's going on here. Democrats do not have a substantive policy outreach program. They can't say to Latino voters, here's what we're going to do. We're going to raise wages. We're going to give you health care. We're going to cut another stimulus check. We're going to have an economic agenda that's going to improve your life. That's why you need to vote for us. They can't say those things because they're not in favor of those things. They're a neoliberal party in favor of crumbs. And so since they feel like they can't reach out that way and craft campaigns that way because they have to appease their donors first and foremost, what do they do? They lean into identity claptrap. They do. And only 2% of Hispanics are like, I like Latinx and I use Latinx. 30% are like, if you dare say that, I don't think I'm going to vote for you. And 40% are offended by it. People got mad at me on Twitter when I said the other day, you know, that I don't want, we need a Democrat who's a New Deal Democrat committed to ending the wars and committed to a a social democratic agenda, but the Democrat can't be stupid ultra woke. There's a reason I say that. You cannot win being, quote, stupid ultra woke, end quote. People do not agree with you. This is elite academic language, stuff that comes out of academia, and academia is culturally detached from the rest of America. It's just a fact, and now it's, it's, you know, shown in the numbers. There's, I, I learned the other day that BIPOC, BIPOC, Black Indigenous People of Color, I learned the other day that, because I had seen that every now and then before, there was one group that came up with it. And then the media and uh, everybody in uh, elite circles started using it. That's not even the way language works. You can't just say, I have a group, we made it up, and now all you better use it or you're racist. What? And that's effectively what happened. So, and by the way, that, there's also another issue with that term. It is literally the oppression Olympics. There's a, supposed to be a hierarchy built around it. So black indigenous people of color, some of the words supposed to say black and indigenous people, 
are at the top of the hierarchy of oppression because they've had it worse, and uh, other people of color are you know, below them in the hierarchy of oppression. You really want to start playing this game? It's also short-sighted and very America-centric, too, because, you know, if you're in Turkey, the Armenians are the people who've had it worst. How do we account for that? How do we account for, there's, uh, you know, I watched a documentary on albino populations in Africa, and they have it worse. You know, uh, there's ethnic minorities in China who have it worse. So how do you account for that in your, in your order? And also, look, it's debatable as to who had it worse, black people or indigenous people. Isn't there an argument for IBPOC and not BIPOC because indigenous people were genocided in this country? I mean, once you open this door, there is no end to the insanity. You can just debate all this stuff until you're blue in the face and the entire time losing voters. Again, I hate to bring it up again, but I have to. Defund the police polls at 18%. We're seriously having debates about whether or not to keep using that slogan. I don't care what you think of the policy. The policy, when it's explained, is actually perfectly reasonable. Police budgets are gargantuan. Cut the police budgets in half. You still have plenty to deal with the actual law enforcement. Great. And then the other 50% can go to social work and helping people with mental health crises and things of that nature. That's a perfectly reasonable policy. Why would you slap a logo on that that makes it the least appealing policy to the overwhelming majority of Americans? You do that if you want to virtue signal to your insular subgroup. You don't do that if you want to win and actually gain power and enact these policies. I've used this example before, but it's like instead of Bernie Sanders calling universal health care Medicare for all, he could have said, I want a full socialist government takeover of health care. And that would have been pretty fucking pure from a lefty perspective where we all would have been like, true, I like that. But that shit also would have pulled at like 30%, whereas Medicare for all pulls at like 60 or 70%. When you are doing politics, you lead with your most popular foot. You lead with your best foot. You try to expand the tent to get more voters to win to then enact the policy. You don't do the, most, the least popular shit you can do and then think it's going to help you. Don't, I'm begging everybody, don't die on this hill. Don't die on the Latinx hill. The numbers could not be more clear. And Hispanic people themselves are like, don't do it. We don't agree with you. So if you are disagreeing with the overwhelming majority of Hispanic people and you are telling them what's good for them, are you the bigot? Now, I don't actually mean that because people can have disagreements on, you know, which terminology to use. But if we're using the same sort of shitty shortcut arguments that they use, that is an argument that we would make with a straight face. There has been, over time, there has been more and more of a cultural disconnect from Democratic elites uh, with the American people. And I don't know where they got the idea that this stuff is popular, this stuff will win elections, this stuff makes them holier than thou. It really doesn't. It just makes you dumber. Like, you just look stupid. And to have these endless debates and conversations over the language, as opposed to doing the most obvious thing and just calling them what they want to be called, well, there are consequences to that. So I give you all of that. I tell you all of that to then tell you this. There's a new poll that just came out. I saw it right before I came on air here. It is incredible. New polling from the Wall Street Journal. Get this. In a hypothetical rematch between President Biden and former President Trump, Biden gets 44% from Hispanic voters and Trump gets 43. This is supposed to be Democrats 70 or 80% 
Republicans 30 or 20. Now, it's almost dead tied. By the way, when you talk to Hispanic voters, I saw there was a great article about this after Trump had massively increased his vote share with Hispanics. And um, so, for example, Hispanics on, in, on, in border towns in Texas, there was a big uh, flip to pro-Trump in those areas. Um, some of them cited immigration. A lot of these people are uh, just as hardline on immigration as many white voters. But one of the, one of the things that was cited the most was actually the stimulus checks. They were like, look, I got a check with his name on it, so I voted for him. See, that's what I'm talking about. You want to win, you do shit like that. Now, look, Biden did the $1,400 checks early on, and you know what? At the time, he had a fucking 54% approval rating. Now he's down to 38%. So do you want to win back voters? Materially deliver for them. You don't virtue signal to them and use weird, elite academic language. That's what you do. Give people stimulus checks. Give people health care. Give people free education. Abolish student loan debt. Actually do universal child care or universal pre-K, which now the Build Back Better bill looks dead in the water, and also those programs aren't even universal anymore. They've been watered down to the high heavens. So that's what you do, but no. My guess is they'll keep going down the road of elite academic bullshit language, and uh, we'll keep getting polls like this, and yet again I'll be saying, I told you so, and yet again nobody will adjust course. Okay. All right, let's keep going, baby. So there is a tense standoff going on right now between Russia and the U.S. um, over Ukraine. Now, there's been uh, tensions there for a while. In fact, under the Trump administration, there was a a NATO buildup at uh, Russia's border. Trump, of course, refused to approve the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Um, Trump actually was arming some very questionable rebel groups in Ukraine with neo-Nazi ties. So this has been a flashpoint for a while. Uh, Well, now there's even more tensions that are being ramped up. Biden, I think to his credit, actually approved the Nord Stream 2 pipeline as the uh, Russia to Germany pipeline. Um, and, but he also, one of the other things Biden did is he got back into a nuclear treaty that Trump had pulled out of. So that's a, that's a good thing Biden did as well. So in some ways, he's made overtures towards peace, even though the Democratic Party more generally has been very hawkish and hostile when it comes to Russia with their language, mainly because of Russiagate and the toxic political climate as a result of that. Um, Well, now as a result of these new tensions, you have psychos on the right and the left in D.C. uh, showing their whole ass. So here you have Republican Senator Wicker, I believe, and I think he's from Mississippi. He goes on Mississippi, Missouri, I don't know. Anyway, he goes on uh, Fox News here, talks to Neil Cavuto, and says one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. Take a look. Actually, I think there are over 200 U.S. troops in Ukraine right now.
right now uh, under the uniforms of, um, of the National Guard, perhaps from California, which is their partner National Guard organization, and perhaps also from Florida. So there are American troops uniformed in Ukraine now. Uh, so they're doing very little in that respect, if you think about it, to hold Putin back. He's obviously no, no, got these troops with him there, right? But, but they are there, and also there's certainly nothing wrong with us, Neil, getting our, our troops in, in, in place in NATO countries that are treaty allies of ours. So I would be supportive of that. You know, I'm not I would not rule out. I would not rule out military action. I, I think we start we start making a mistake when we take options off the table. So I, I would hope the president keeps that option on the table. And to the extent that he has agreed to to reverse his mistake on Nord Stream 2, if that is in fact what came out of the, uh, out of, uh, the discussion today, uh, I would applaud that. Hope he does it. Or what does military action mean, Senator? Well, military action uh, could mean uh, that, that we stand off with our ships in the Black Sea and, and we rain destruction on, uh, on, on, on Russian military capability. It could mean that. It could mean that we participate. And I would not rule that out. I would not rule out American troops on the ground. We don't, you know, we don't rule out uh, first use nuclear uh, action that we... We don't rule out a nuclear first strike on Russia. This guy's advocating this on the number one news network in the country. A nuclear first strike. He's advocating the apocalypse. He's advocating we all die. Because I don't know if you know this, Senator, that's the way it works. You launch on Moscow, Moscow launches on New York. We launch on other big cities in Russia. They launch on other big cities in the U.S. So you have people who die in the initial nuclear strikes. Probably the nukes keep flying for a while with a number of big cities getting wiped out. Then the real fun begins. Nuclear winter. Then you have the famines, the poisoned water, the radiation poisoning that gets everybody. You cannot have a nuclear war in the year 2021. We all die. All of us die. Civilization is donezo. This is a grown-ass man I'm talking to right now. You haven't thought through the consequences of this shit? Have you never thought about this for more than five seconds? He's a senator. You're a sitting senator, and look at how loosey-goosey and casual and nonchalant he is with a nuclear first strike. I wouldn't rule it out. Oh, you wouldn't rule it out? I'd rule it out. You bet your fucking ass I'd rule it out. Look, it's crazy enough when people talk about uh, not even a nuclear first strike, any kind of nuclear strike, a reactionary nuclear strike. But nuclear first strike? That is psycho shit. Absolutely psychopathic. And look at how casual he is about it. He talks about how U.S. troops are already there in Ukraine. He wouldn't rule out other military action. Quote, rain destruction on Russian military capability, American troops on the ground. 
people like this, he's been so pampered his entire life. He doesn't understand that war is real. War is real. People die. Lives are ruined. Countries are ruined. It's literally hell on earth. That's what it feels like. And you're doing this for what? He's afraid that Russia is going to take over Ukraine. Look, Russia took over the country of Georgia under the Obama administration. Now, is that a good thing? No. Obama could have pressed the red button when they did that, and where would we all be right now? Dead. All of us. So I'm fucking happy Obama didn't press the red button when he took over Georgia and, and the Crimea incident happened. I'm really fucking happy about that. You could easily condemn Vladimir Putin for doing that, while on the other hand say, it's good we didn't launch nukes or start a ground invasion. I think that's the reasonable position. Now, the other thing is, and you're never going to get this perspective in U.S. mainstream media, ever, because they never try to give you an accurate, objective, balanced view of the situation. Look at the history of the region. So go back and look at the map of the former Soviet Union and look at how large it was. Then look at what happened when the Soviet Union was broken up. And what happened was the West aided in creating all of these post-Soviet independent states that were no longer part of the Soviet Union. Um, and so basically the Soviet Union became Russia and they got pushed more east on the map and you have all these post-Soviet states. Now, at the time when you were, had the NATO alliance, they had given Russia their word. We're not gonna go an inch past where we are now. Then over the years, they added one post-Soviet state and another post-Soviet state, and another post-Soviet state into NATO. Now, from the perspective of the Russian government and even the Russian citizen, what does that look like to them? That looks like an act of aggression. That looks like Western powers and the United States of America inching further and further towards the Russian border, and they fear, look, are they going to try to topple us? Are they going to wage a war against us? In the same way that if Russia suddenly uh, made Mexico part of their military alliance, we'd be like, hey, yo, what are you doing? That's exactly how they feel with our actions in the region. Now, look, I'm not saying what's right or wrong. I'm just giving you what their perspective of the situation is. We gave them our word. We're not going to move in NATO an inch past where it is now when we, they broke up the Soviet Union. Then we kept inching towards their border. So from their perspective, they're like, hey, back up off us. And from their perspective, they're acting defensively. Now, the other thing is, when they go, and go in and jack areas of, that used to be part of the Soviet Union, I, I condemn that. They shouldn't do that. Now, their argument is, look, the places we're taking over are uh, ethnically Russian. So the ethnic minority areas we didn't annex, but we took back, took back that's how they view it, we took back part of what used to be the Soviet Union and was rightly the Soviet Union. So I think in their mind, they feel like, look, all those post-Soviet states truly are ours anyway. And now the U.S. is encroaching on them and making them part of NATO, which means they're Western allied. So they view that as an act of aggression, and they view them taking back over those areas as like a return to what it should be. So again, I'm not saying what's right or wrong. I'm giving you their perspective on the situation. But what you get from the U.S., both the U.S. government, the Pentagon, the CIA, all these senators, all the mainstream media outlets in the U.S., they don't even tell you their side of the story. 
They don't tell you it. And listen, you've got to keep it real. The U.S. is the world's sole superpower right now. We have the biggest military by far and away. We have 800, 900 military bases around the world. And we've waged illegal and offensive wars against countries that didn't attack us. We overthrow democratic governments and put in puppet dictators. Look at South America. Look at Central America. This is what we do. So they view the U.S.'s actions and NATO's actions as aggressive. Now, you might not agree with that. Fine. But at least understand their perspective before you casually talk about, maybe we should launch the nukes and do a first strike. And I have no doubt, even if this guy pressed the button for the nuclear first strike, he turned around and said, it was defensive. Or was it? This is why you can't have a nuclear war. Because it's game, set, match on all of us. We have no other option but diplomacy, negotiations, talking through, compromise. Now, I get it. Some people make the argument, look, Kyle, sometimes there are Hitlers out there. And as Neville Chamberlain learned, Hitler is unappeasable. So you make a peace deal with him, and then he just violates the peace deal and keeps expanding. I submit to you, there are Hitlers out there, but there's very few Hitlers. There are people who you could even say are domestically like Hitler, Kim Jong-un. But he also doesn't have the expansionist ideology that Hitler did. So it's not like Kim Jong-un is going to take over Malaysia and Thailand and then Cleveland. It's not going to happen. So these differences matter. And as bad as you want to say Vladimir Putin is, he's not Adolf Hitler. And ain't no way he's going to take over Germany or some shit. So... Just keep all that in mind. These guys don't care about the nuance. These guys don't, don't care about the complexities. And there are some people who are unappeasable. There are some people who you can't work with and can't negotiate with and can't compromise with. They're not, it's not everybody. And according to the U.S., all of our official state enemies are like that. Can't negotiate with them, can't talk to them, and all they understand is force. So now maybe a nuclear first strike that we'll do on them. Well, in that instance, who's really the baddie? Okay. We got a saw going on outside. I don't know if you guys could hear it. Let me take a quick break. Quick break. When we come back, I got uh, Jake Tapper rips Hollywood for their deals with China and much more. Stay right there, y'all.
are back, bitch. All right, welcome back to the show, y'all. I just shoved a hero sandwich down my throat. Um, all right, let's keep it going. CNN's Jake Tapper did an impassioned segment here. He went after Hollywood, the NBA, billionaires, and uh, business people who are doing blood money deals with China. Let's take a look, and then I'll react. The allegations against the Chinese government go far beyond its treatment of Shui. This year, both the Trump and Biden administrations have asserted that China is committing, quote, genocide and crimes against humanity against more than one million Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, Hui, other Muslims, some Christians, in internment camps or converted detention facilities, according to the U.S. State Department. Chinese authorities are forcing some women in these camps to take unknown drugs and injections. They're forcibly implanting IUDs, coercing them to get abortions and surgical sterilizations. According to former detainees, Beijing, of course, denies these charges. In fact, it's possible that you are about to purchase or receive a Christmas present made, at least in part, by Uyghur forced labor in Xinjiang province. Bipartisan legislation being debated right now in Congress would help prevent that if it passes. Right now, it's unclear that the House and Senate Democrats have a plan to get that legislation to President Biden's desk, with the Washington Post reporting that the Biden State Department is seeking to water down this legislation. I know that for a time, Apple and Nike, a lot of big companies are pushing against that. They're not going to admit it. Who's going to go out lobbying in favor of slave labor? But this is their bottom line. Of course, Apple and Nike publicly claim to decry the slave labor. But to be clear, the behavior we are seeing from U.S. corporations is not about a company surviving. It's about discontent with just hundreds of millions of dollars, desiring instead billions of dollars. And those riches, they create blinders so that you get comments like this one about the Chinese government this past week from billionaire hedge fund manager Ray Dalio. As a top-down country, what they're doing is that it's that kind of like a strict parent. They behave like a strict parent, and they go through that. That is their approach. We have our approach. A strict parent, just like, you know, Casey Anthony. Even companies that here in the U.S. pride themselves on progressive values will whitewash for gold for a Chinese-released Marvel Studios Doctor Strange turned a major Tibetan character into a Celtic one, reportedly for fear of offending China. Here's Tom Cruise's iconic bomber jacket and Top Gun from 1986, which includes a flag of Taiwan patch. And here's Paramount's replacement patch, decidedly not Taiwan, for next year's sequel. Here's Disney in the credits for Mulan, thanking the publicity department of the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang, where the cultural genocide is happening. Disney, of course, bought the rights to The Simpsons for its streaming service. And this last week, we learned that this 2005 episode, which shows The Simpsons in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, the site of a brutal crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, a sign reads in The Simpsons episode, on this site in 1989, nothing happened. And that episode, that's not available for Disney Plus subscribers in Hong Kong. Disney has not responded to requests for comment. That Simpsons episode in Hong Kong disappeared, like Peng Shui, disappeared like citizen journalist Zhang Zhang, whom the Chinese government has locked up for telling the truth about COVID-19, disappeared like the consciences of the millionaires and billionaires in Hollywood and the NBA and the IOC and Wall Street are all so eager for Chinese cash. They are pretending none of this is happening. There is no amount of money that can buy enough soap to wash that blood off their hands. This is, uh, I believe, the first time that Jake Tapper has ever gone after millionaires, billionaires, and Wall Street. He said all those things in that clip. So let's break this down. Um, The Peng Shui thing is nuts. You have this uh, Chinese tennis star who 
accused uh, a top um, Chinese government official of, I don't know if it was sexual harassment or sexual assault. Uh, it was some sort of Me Too allegation. And it was this long post that she put on the Chinese version of Twitter. Within 30 minutes, that was pulled down. And then she disappeared. Now, since then, there's been a couple pictures that were released of her giving an interview to the, uh, you know, the Olympic Committee, of her giving a video interview to the Olympic Committee. They didn't release the video, but they released a picture of her giving it. There was also her at a restaurant that was a Chinese state-owned restaurant. Um, there was this cryptic post that was released where she was like, I'm okay, and if I get to play again, I would like to bring honor to the, my Chinese homeland or something to that effect. A very suspicious post. <clears throat> so uh, she made a very serious allegation against the top Chinese government official, and then she basically disappeared. And um, so women's tennis cut ties with China and cut off all their, uh, their tournaments there, you know, unless and until she shows up and there's a reasonable explanation and all that stuff. Uh, but they appear to be the only ones who are taking any sort of stand. Um, and what Jake Tapper is doing here is list, listing off uh, the ways in which Hollywood and the NBA and U.S. business has really kowtowed to China. They're changing movies and TV shows and social media companies and um, it's, it's really not okay. I wouldn't bend the rules for any country. You know, I wouldn't change, uh, episodes or change movies or change terms of service or be more authoritarian, re restrict free speech even more to accommodate any foreign government. I'd say, look, the deal is what it is. If we're going to do business in your country, this is how our business functions. And because these are the values that we believe in. And that's that. Obviously you have, you know, money hungry corporate losers who care more about the bottom line than, than they do about any ethical moral code and, and more, they care more about the money than the values. And so they don't do that. Now, another issue here is outsourcing. So, you know, uh, maybe not necessarily with the industries he's specifically calling out, but Jake, we've had U.S. businesses um, doing business with China for a long time now, for decades. Uh, we had permanent normal trade relations with China was probably the worst trade deal, even worse than NAFTA, because it totally gutted American manufacturing and outsourced like all the jobs, millions. And so, I mean, that was the original sin is permanent normal trade relations with China. I never would have done that. As you guys know, I say this all the time. Anything that we can make in America, we should make in America. I'm totally fine with free trade and trading out of necessity for things we need, but anything that can be made here should be made here. And the way you address that is to change the nature of the trade deals and basically disincentivize outsourcing through taxes and through policy. So what you do is you say, look, if you outsource the jobs, I guess we can't stop you, but we're going to slap a tariff on, on your goods when they get back in the country, which makes the goods even more expensive for you if you make your goods overseas with cheap Chinese labor. So in other words, you are going to incentivize people to create the jobs in the U.S. Look, it, protectionism gets a bad rap. You know, it, it's this dirty word in U.S. politics, but I don't know why. Would you want to protect your family? Would you want to protect your neighbor? Would you want to protect your community? Of course. So why protectionism? It's got a negative connotation to it, but no. And by the way, they put the smiley face on free trade. Oh, we're just doing free trade. Well, who's against freedom? What are you, crazy? Well, no. And another way of describing that is outsourcing. So I would totally rip up that trade deal and come up with a new deal that incentivizes uh, U.S. jobs staying here. And I would craft rules and regulations to make it so that these companies that want to do business in China, they have to abide by 
certain values, including uh, an adherence to free speech and things of that nature. So I have no problem with that. Look, I have no problem with Jake Tapper doing this segment. The part that I can't get over is the colossal hypocrisy of him, because all of a sudden he's moral and righteous and on his soapbox. Jake Tapper has said nothing about the multi-billion dollar subsidies we give Israel every year. They have free health care and we don't, but we give them billions of dollars every year. He said nothing about our business dealings with them. And we have, there are companies that make shit in occupied Palestinian territory. And they, uh, you know, the goods get sent here. He doesn't want to boycott those goods. He doesn't morally grandstand about that. He's got nothing to say about that. And by the way, the BDS movement says, hey, in illegally occupied Palestinian territory, we're going to boycott those goods because those businesses shouldn't be there because that's Palestinian territory. Um, he's got nothing to say about that. He's got nothing to say about uh, our, the fact that we arm 73% of the world's dictatorships. He's acting like, oh, look at this. We got all these business dealings with this terrible uh, dictatorship, an authoritarian country. We give weapons to 73% of the world's dictatorships, and he's got nothing to say about any of them. He's got nothing to say about Saudi Arabia and our close relationship with them. He's got nothing to say about Israel and our, and our close relationship to them. The problem is how selective he is in his moral outrage. That's the problem. It's only, it, notice, notice, this is important, it's only when it's the official U.S. enemy baddie states that he's got something to say, and he hops right up on that soapbox. That's the problem. So look, I got no issue with this segment, other than you better craft one on Israel and our close uh, economic ties with them and political ties with them. They're an apartheid government. They're doing illegal occupation. They're doing a slow-moving ethnic cleansing. You know, better craft that segment. Better craft the segment about our unholy alliance with Saudi Arabia, we just gave a country that's doing a genocide in Yemen $650 million more in weapons that are defensive in nature. Total bullshit. Not defensive at all. You know, over 200,000 people are dead in Yemen from famine and lack of medicine because of a blockade from Saudi Arabia that we're helping back. And the military weapons that we give Saudi Arabia that they use to bomb babies and mosques and schools and open-air markets. I want you to craft your segment on Saudi Arabia, on Israel, while you're at it on the 73% of the world's dictatorships that we militarily arm. So in other words, the moral grandstanding needs to be objective and needs to not only be targeted at the official U.S. enemy baddie states. Because then, what are you doing effectively? You're just carrying water for, for U.S. propaganda, is what it is. That's what you're doing. So there is more tension between the U.S. government and China than there is between U.S. businesses and China, for sure. And so he's going after the businesses, Hollywood, NBA, the various businesses. Fair enough. But the real target is the U.S. government because the U.S. government creates the policies that then leads to the businesses doing what they're doing. So you want to change this? Change the policies. Change the policies. You know, so go after the government. Tell them to rip up permanent normal trade relations with China. Tell them to craft a new piece of legislation that demands that these social media companies abide by free speech and they don't censor for authoritarian governments. By the way, they never would do that because we like to, uh, this country likes to not allow free speech. I mean, for the love of God, they just suspended on Twitter um, an account that was tracking the, the Ghislaine Maxwell trial and the Epstein stuff. They just suspended it on Twitter. Well, so we don't even believe in free speech. And by the way, even to the, we just covered a story on the show the other day. This isn't a flippant point. This is very serious. In South Georgia, they uncovered a fucking slavery ring, a forced labor ring. 
using a specific kind of visa that gives employers all control over the employees. They had electric fencing around it, people staying in places that had terrible plumbing, uh, no, uh, very little clean food and clean water. They were doing forced labor effectively. So, you know, look, again, I have no problem with this segment, but in context, he only does it when it's official U.S. enemy back. He's got nothing to do, nothing to say about it when it's our allies, and he's got nothing to say about it when it's us. So um, the sanctimonious tone is unearned for that exact reason, because he's a hypocrite. He doesn't do this objectively. He doesn't talk about all the, um, the various human rights offenders and authoritarian governments and our cozy relationship with them. Um, but, yes, having said that, fucking free Peng Shui, um, stop altering these movies and these shows just to get access to Chinese markets and Chinese money and uh, change the nature of these outsourcing deals, for sure. Bring back U.S. manufacturing. I mean, if anything that this pandemic should show us, it's that, that we can't rely on foreign governments, especially in times of crisis. We're waiting on PPE. Like, we should be making everything that we can make here, we should make here. And we'd be much richer and much better off for it, and a lot more people would have good-paying jobs. Okay, next. So Elon Musk did an interview here, and uh, many parts of the interview they talked about politics, and he really just exposed himself as a believer in right-wing economics. Um, so I have a clip here that I'm going to play for you, then I'm going to come back and break down why this is so misleading and wrong. In, in general, we, we should just, we, we, if we don't cut government spending, uh, something really bad is going to happen. This is crazy. Our, our spending is so far in excess of revenue, it, it's insane. Um, but, like, you could zero out all billionaires in the, in the country. This is almost like anti-billionaire BS. Uh, well, uh, if, if you zeroed out all the billionaires, you still wouldn't solve the deficit. All right, I'll ask you another question around uh, the billionaire BS. Say tomorrow we, we talk, you get the phone call from, uh, from President Biden. Next day, actually, we decide we, we elect you to Congress. Somehow this happens. You're now working on tax bills. You're, you're working on tax policy. What, what is, how do you tax someone like you? How do you tax billionaires? Uh, I mean, first of all, I pay a lot of tax. I mean, my marginal tax rate is like 53%. So that's not trivial. Um, and... Uh, you know, and then obviously there's like, you know, uh, uh, asset-based taxes and sales tax and, and everything else. Um, there's also the estate tax. I, I, and generally, I, I think, I think the, the estate tax is, is a good tax. Um, like, if you think of uh, assets beyond a certain level um, that, that are far beyond, uh, let's say, somebody's ability to consume, um, then, you know, at some point, really what you're doing is capital allocation. So you're, you're not, it's not money for personal expenditures. It's, it, what you're doing is, is capital allocation. And it, it does not make sense to take uh, the, the job of capital allocation away from people who have demonstrated great skill in capital allocation and give it to, uh, you know, an entity that has demonstrated very poor skill in, in capital allocation, which is the government. Uh, I mean, you can think of the government essentially uh, as a corporation in the limit. Uh, it, it is, it is a, the government is simply the biggest corporation with a monopoly on violence. Okay, let's break this down. There's one part of that that is correct and I agree with. It's that the estate tax is good. In a civilized society, it's not a question of are you going to have taxes or are you not going to have any taxes. Of course you're going to have taxes. You need to create a functioning civil society and government. So then the question is, well, how much, 
how, how much in taxes and who pays the taxes. And the estate tax is the best answer to that question, which is, what if we taxed rich, dead people? And so, in other words, you're not going to hand all the money off to the next generation because then that next generation, total welfare queens, totally entitled, don't have to do anything, and they just get handed everything in life. And everybody agrees that that's ridiculous and makes no sense and is wrong. So he's right about the estate tax. That's the one part that he's right about. Now, let's put that aside. Um, he, does, he tells a brazen lie in there where he says, I pay a lot of tax. My marginal tax rate is 53%. Hey, dude, ProPublica just did a big breakdown of this not too long ago, and I'll show you your true tax rate. So Elon Musk's true tax rate is 3.27%. So let me break this down for you. In other words, I don't remember which year or years this is over, but it's fairly recently. He made $13.9 billion. There was wealth growth for Elon Musk of $13.9 billion. So that's actually the amount of money that he made. Now, the income he reported which is separate. That's what he's claiming as this is my income. So in other words, he could keep some of that $13.9 billion in the company still. But he says, I'm going to take an income of $1.52 billion. And then he says, and then the total taxes paid on that is $455 million. So even if you are as kind to him as you can possibly be with your interpretation, then you say, well, he made $1.52 billion. He paid $455 million. That's not 53%. In taxes. It's not. Do the math on it. It's not. Okay? But what's called the true tax rate, which is the actual percentage that you pay on the wealth that you earned, it's just 3.27%. Now, it actually gets worse than that. So his true tax rate is 3.27%. Since then, since this came out, this piece, we learned from other reporting that Elon Musk learned about this tax avoidance scheme. He probably has a tax attorney that really looks out for him, tell you all the tricks and all the loopholes. He learned about this scheme called buy, borrow, die. Now, the way that works is Elon Musk goes to a bank and says, look, I'm Elon Musk. Um, At one point, literally the richest person in the world. Um, I don't know if he's still number one, but he's certainly in the top 10 or 20. Um, He goes, look, I'm, I'm worth billions. I'm worth billions of dollars. So what the bank allows him to do is borrow against his wealth. And then because he's technically not taking any salary or any income when he borrows against his wealth, he doesn't have to pay any taxes. And he has a literal 0% tax rate. That's what he's doing now. So for him to say, I have a 53% marginal tax rate, that's just totally bogus. If Elon Musk uh, paid every penny to the federal government and state government, probably in California, back when he was in California, and he didn't use any loopholes or any tax attorneys, then maybe he could get to 53%. But He didn't do that, and his actual true tax rate is 3.27%, and now he's not even paying that because he's doing the buy, borrow, die scheme. So, look, call it what it is. I don't care how many of you are are Elon bros out there. I know he's got a lot of stands out there. He's not telling the truth here. What he's saying is not true. Okay, now put that aside. Let's get to the rest of the arguments because there's a lot of stuff to break down here as well. Um, He says at the end there, it doesn't make sense to take the job of capital allocation and give it to an entity that's poor at that skill. So he's saying the government is bad at capital allocation. Private business people are good at capital allocation. So why would you have the government do it? And he makes the argument, the government's like a corporation. That is absolutely incorrect. The government's job is not supposed to be like a big corporation. In fact, the government's job in many respects is to curb the excesses of corporations. 
The government's job is to keep those corporations in check. The government's job is to have rules and regulations in place that mitigate what's called externalities from corporations. So in other words, under capitalism, uh, you have this issue that arises where sometimes doing the right thing does not make monetary fiscal sense. So classic example is there's a, a factory on um, a river and they are involved in, the factory does something that creates toxic waste. Now, it is, it will save them money and therefore pad the bottom line and make more profit and help their shareholders more. And they have a fiduciary responsibility to help their shareholders. It will save them money if they just dump all their toxic waste in the river that's right next to the factory. Classic story, this has happened. I believe it was in New York and I believe it was the Hudson River. That was happening. And then the government had to step in and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. You're killing all the wildlife in the river. You're making it toxic. You people, you know, can swim in it and then they get sick. It might get into some uh, drinking water sources and poison people. You can't do that. So now here's a rule. Here's a regulation. You have to pay for the transportation of the toxic waste to a place where you can safely dispose of it. So that's what's called an externality. And then the government steps in and does a regulation which prevents the harm from being done, which looks out for the entire community, the entire good of the entire country. That's the point of government. The point of government at its best is to be a constitutional republic in this country and a representative democracy. Constitutional republic means, hey, here are these rules. They're ironclad. They're set in stone. These are your rights. These are inexorable. These are, we don't bend these. So in theory, you're supposed to have a right to free speech. In theory, you're supposed to you know, have a right to due process and a trial. And so you have all these things. Hey, th- no cruel, unusual punishment. All these things are your rights. We're going to protect these rights. And on the other hand, representative democracy. So you elect people who then in turn pass rules and regulations and laws that you want them to pass. So you have some democratic say in the way your country is run. That is, this is all literally fundamentally the opposite of what a corporation is. A corporation is, we're here to make money. It's all about the profit, and we have a rigid hierarchy. So you have the owner, then you have the manager underneath the owner, and then what we say goes, and we're going to try to increase productivity. We're going to try to make as much money as possible. And that's the way that works. It's not even close to the same thing. It's fundamentally at odds in many respects, and that's a good thing. You don't want to run the, the country and the government like a business because you're not in the business of profit at all. This is why the best governments in the world, the functioning social democracies that beat our ass in every measurable way, the governments provide free health care and free college and paid vacation time by law. And they make it so life is not just about economics and a capital pursuit. You know, it's not this perverse game that your whole life is. It's the community aspect and the collective aspect and a way to set reasonable rules and standards and foster a society. That is not at all what a corporation is. So that line has always pissed me off because it takes five seconds of thought to realize it's not true. Government should act like more like a corporation or is like a corporation. And even the, the idea that, well, the, Private investors are good at capital allocation. The government's bad at it. Uh, not necessarily. Sometimes, sure. Like, are there some businessmen who are good at capital allocation and, you know, they uh, invest in things that make sense and it helps the community? Sure, that could happen. But it could also happen with the government. You know, uh, the New Deal was great, a great use of capital allocation. Could argue the Marshall Plan, same thing. Now, are there bad examples of what the government does with money? Well, of course. They fucking bailed out Wall Street to the tune of billions of dollars and they waged these endless wars so it, there's nothing inherent about government or 
uh, private capital that makes one good and the other bad. That is a phenomenally unnuanced take for a guy who's supposed to be some sort of mega genius. So, I, I mean, the ways in which this doesn't make sense, if you can't tell, are astronomical. Astronomical. Um, then he, he makes the point earlier in there about all this anti-billionaire nonsense. You can zero out all the billionaires and it won't solve the deficit. Okay, well, first of all, the point of tackling billionaires is not to eliminate the budget deficit. In fact, if you bothered to read any, anything on economics, whether it's MMT theory, Keynesian theory, or what have you, any modern economic school of thought, what you realize is deficit spending is not inherently bad. And the national debt is something you'll never eliminate. That's, you know, virtually all countries have a national debt, and it's not something that you pay off over time. That's not the way it works. Uh, and again, the deficit, when you, when you have times of economic stagnation, you're supposed to run a budget deficit. The government is a spender of last resort to try to give a, a jumpstart to the economy so that we don't suffer horrendous recessions and depressions every five or 10 years. So he just doesn't understand the budget deficit. But even the idea that, uh, oh, you could tax all the billionaires, everything, and it doesn't eliminate the deficit. Well, that's not the point of taxing billionaires. One of the points of, tax, uh, of taxing billionaires is to, is to limit the worst excesses of capitalism because capitalism left on its own might make it so that literally one family, the Walton family, six people has more wealth than almost the bottom 50% of the country combined. Seems like a problem, doesn't it? Seems like a problem. So the, the point is not to solve the budget deficit. The point is, here's the other thing. Extreme wealth is, is system threatening by its very nature. Because when you have a small group of people with so much money, so much wealth, so much power, so much influence, they effectively can buy the government. And they can use the government for their own purposes, and then the government is no longer representing the will of the people, which is what it's supposed to do. So this is the problem of corruption. This is the problem of money in politics. When you have a, a, a small group of corporations and a small group of billionaires that have so much money that they own the country and they run the country, you don't really have a democracy anymore. You don't really have a functioning government anymore. You have a plaything for the mega wealthy. You have what's called a kleptocracy or an oligarchy or a corporatocracy, and that's what we have in this country. So there are, there's an inherent problem with extreme wealth. Now, by the way, you talk to most leftists and they're not saying take all the money from all the billionaires. I mean, maybe some do, but there are various ideas out there. Uh, you can max out at like a billion dollars in net worth. You know, so everything over a billion dollars is effectively taxed at 100%. And you take that money, you allocate it to universal health care, universal education, whatever, things of that nature. Now, he does say in there at one point, like, yeah, if people have enough money that it far exceeds their ability to consume in a lifetime. Like, that's a problem. That's why he said he's in favor of the estate tax. To which I respond, yes, Elon, that's the one thing you said that makes sense. So if people have more wealth than they could ever use to consume in a lifetime, then why do they have that wealth? Maybe that shouldn't be allowed. If you really believe that, then maybe the, the max out number people should have is like 500 million and not a billion. You know? So it, look, it depends which leftist you talk to, but some will say, you know, cap it. 100% tax over a billion dollars in net worth. Um, some would go lower than that. Some would go higher than that. But the fact of the matter is you absolutely need to, to curb systemic inequality, whether it's wealth inequality or income inequality, because 
you create a system that is a joke. You create a system that is of buying for the wealthy, of buying for the corporations, doesn't serve the needs of the people, and then it's just tick-tock until the whole thing implodes. And that's where we are right now. So he's this in this little clip alone, it's a mess. He also attacked Build Back Better in another portion of it, and his arguments suck. Um, and final thing, he says there, if we don't cut government spending, something bad is going to happen. It's insane. So this is Elon Musk, one of the world's richest people, doing the classic fallacy that, like, well, the way the federal government works should be the way a household works and the way a household balances its budget. They are not the same thing. The dollar is the world reserve currency. And even if it wasn't, we have a sovereign currency that we have control over. It's not the same as a household. It's not at all the same as a household. And so running a budget deficit sometimes is the correct thing to do. So it, he just... It's just a mess. This whole thing is a mess. And he started talking politics, and he sounded very similar to a confused 14-year-old Ayn Rand fan, and that came across very clearly. Next. So we have a story that um, came out about the media, and boy, oh boy, is this something. So Oliver Darcy of CNN says, some news and reliable sources, senior White House and administration officials have been holding briefings with major newsrooms over the past week as they try to reshape economic coverage, reshape. White House quietly tries to reshape economic coverage. The White House, not happy with the news media's coverage of the supply chain and the economy, has been working behind the scenes trying to reshape coverage in its favor. Senior White House and admin officials, including NEC Deputy Directors David uh, Kamen and Bharat Ramamurti, along with Port's envoy John Porcati, uh, Porcari, have been briefing major newsrooms over the past week, a source tells me. The officials have been discussing with newsrooms trends pertaining to job creation, economic growth, supply chains, and more. The basic argument that has been made uh, that the country's economy is mu in much better shape than it was last year. I'm told the conversations have been productive with anchors and reporters and producers getting to talk with the officials. So... Um, this is uh, a White House that's not happy with negative coverage it's getting in the media, and now they're trying to reshape that coverage in the media. So this is effectively functioning the way state TV functions. Hey, let me meet with you. Let me tell you where you're getting wrong. Let me explain to you what you need to say. And then they do, and then they tell them, and then they hope that they go and do it. Now, maybe there's not that command element to it where they, you have to do it or else, but my guess is a lot of these outlets are going to start parroting a lot of the White House talking points. Now, let me ask you. No fan of Trump. Hate him. In fact, he's worse than Biden. I'm on the record with all that. Do you think they would have done this with Donald Trump? There's one outlet that would have. Fox News. There's two others, actually, maybe. Newsmax and One American News Network. Uh, CNN would have done this. MSNBC would have done this. So, look, I mean, the takeaway is as simple as simple could be. Fox News is the Republican propaganda network. CNN and MSNBC are the Democratic propaganda network. And, look, don't take my word for it. We're going to see. We're going to see very soon just how much they change their, their tune and how much they parrot White House talking points. My guess is they're going to be all in. My guess is they're going to make a point of softening their tone. And also, I mean, I predicted this before as well. There was a new AI report that came out which looked at like 200,000 articles and TV shows, new shows, and found that um, Biden got very favorable coverage at first, and then it plunged like around the Afghanistan time, and then it stayed roughly in the same area as Trump since then. My guess is that as we get closer to a general election, they're going to start 
ramping up pro-Biden coverage if he runs again because they want to portray him as great in comparison to Trump. So right now he's, you know, in the dumps, but they're trying to change that direction. And then eventually they'll, they'll start doing more pro-Biden propaganda when, if he is the one who ends up taking on Trump. So, look, it's just there's so much wrong with this. The whole idea of the media, it's supposed to be the fourth estate. It's supposed to be, uh, as, as Jank Uger used to say, it's supposed to be the watchdog of power, not the lapdog of power. And this is clearly the lapdog of power. And it's got to change. It's got to change. The thing that people look for, reasonable people look for uh, in the media is give me facts, Give me news, give me information, give me data. And if you want to give me your opinion on top of that, cool, but just give me the information first. And the sense that you get from all the various major media outlets is that they're just hacks. They're just all in on a partisan narrative, whether it's Republicans on Fox News or Democrats on uh, CNN and MSNBC. And um, this direct sort of collusion, dare I say, with the media is unacceptable. You're supposed to be holding them accountable not like taking pointers from them on how to discuss the economy. It's absurd. All right, next. So Senator Tom Cotton uh, was on the floor of the Senate and he was talking about these U.S. attorneys, five U.S. attorneys, and their nominees, and they're up to be approved. And he decided, what if I blocked all of these? Now, the reason he wanted to do it is astounding. That the senator from Illinois would simply express regret for what happened that day and pledge that it wouldn't happen again, I would be happy to let all of these nominees move forward. We have communicated this to the senator from Illinois and his staff on multiple occasions. I reiterate it today. I would be happy to confirm these nominees in the following few minutes. If the senator from Illinois would simply express regret for what happened in the hearing that day and commit that it won't happen again. Eight months ago, he was in a committee hearing with Senator Dick Durbin, and Dick Durbin interrupted him. He cut him off. Tom Cotton's feelings are so hurt by that, that here we are eight months later, and he's holding up all U.S. attorney nominees because of his fees. There was a time when I thought, as a naive little boy, little five-year-old Kyle sitting there, thinking, wow, I sure am glad the adults have stuff figured out and that they can handle stuff and run stuff effectively. Not only was I wrong, it turns out the adults are actually very similar to five-year-old Kyle. You know, you're five years old, you get your fee-fees hurt. <laughs> the world's ending. The sky's falling. I will drag this household to a halt because I'm sensitive. He's dragging U.S. attorney nominees to a halt. Sorry, we can't fill these seats because of my feelings. Because I was interrupted eight months ago. Do you have any idea, on a daily basis, how many people at work are interrupted? Is it a mild annoyance? Sure. 
my guess is like 85% of them are like, okay, and then they just sort of move on. Maybe have a slightly lower opinion of the person, whoever it was that interrupted you. But shit, it happens. Now, by the way, what happened after this? Dick Durbin said, oh, I didn't realize, I, was, I apologize. And Tom Cowell was like, all right, cool. And then they just went about their business and they got him through. But what if Dick Durbin didn't do that? What then? I'll tell you what then. We just wouldn't fill those U.S. attorney positions. Wouldn't happen. He made a whole grandstanding speech over this, bro. He th- like, and the funny thing is he thinks this is so moral and so righteous and so ethical. No, Tom Cotton, you're just a little snowflake bitch. That's all you are. That's all you are. I can't imagine. Like, you're, you're a politician, bro. Your job is to do law shit, pass laws. This very important stuff for the country. And he's like, I'm just not going to do that because something happened eight months ago that was a mild annoyance. Babies. And, and these are the people who pretend like they're macho men, you know, these Republicans. The, how, many, how many things have we seen now where they're doing campaign ads and they're shooting guns or now the new thing is Christmas cards where they're holding guns? He's supposed to be the tough guys. He's like, <laughs> you hurt my feelings eight months ago when you interrupted me. <laughs> Ground all of our work to a halt. Ground it to a halt. Just, just apologize. Just apologize. Like, what are you, a fucking spurned high school boyfriend? What a bitch. Such a bitch. <laughs> what a child. Anyway, that's all I have to say about this. It's funny, but also it's terrifying because these are the people running the country. Okay. Let me take a final break real quick. When I come back, Joe Manchin might switch to the Republican Party. What? Stay right there. We'll be right back.
We are back, bitch. All right, welcome back, y'all. <clears throat> welcome back. Okay. Keep it going. Joe Manchin. Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, uh, now for a second time, is flirting with leaving the Democratic Party. Manchin on switching parties. I'm caught between the two. But the bottom line is, you have to be caucusing somewhere. If they ask me to leave, well, I'll just have to say, I guess I'll have to abide by your wishes. I don't intend to leave, but I intend to be honest. What does that even mean? What does that mean? I don't intend to leave, but I intend to be honest. You haven't been honest for a single second of the entire Build Back Better negotiations. Remember when he said, oh, um, just, just, vote for the, just vote for the traditional infrastructure bill, and then well, I promise you we'll work it out with the Build Back Better bill. And then what happened? The progressive weasel losers voted for the traditional infrastructure bill. They were had, they were took, they were bamboozled, and then Joe Manchin was like, ha, have you seen the new inflation numbers? Maybe it's time to put this on the shelf for a little bit. And now after doing all that, he turns around and adds insult to injury, and is like, maybe I'll leave the party. Now, the fact of the matter is, I don't think he's going to do it. This sort of tap dance that uh, Joe Manchin does actually helps him in West Virginia. Now, look, don't get it twisted. On the policy of Build Back Better, it was super popular in Virginia. We went over the numbers, provision by provision. Even among Republicans, it was popular. Um, so he's not popular on those things. But the whole, like, playing footsie with Republicans and saying, I'm a West Virginia Democrat and saying, I'm not like these other Democrats, that stuff actually does go over well in West Virginia. So he's just posturing here. But listen, man, it's time to make this dude heal. He, he actually exposed a giant soft spot he has. There was one time when a nerve was touched. You know what it was? When Bernie Sanders wrote an op-ed in a West Virginia paper explaining why you have to vote for this bill. It's a good bill. He apparently was furious behind the scenes about that. So what does that tell you? You're on to something. So, you know, what should be done at this late date? Look, we've passed the point of, because they already got the traditional infrastructure bill. Now there's no leverage. Good job, uh, lefties in the house. You had all the leverage in the world. You squandered all the leverage in the world. So now what do we have to do? Well, now the traditional threats I talked about won't work. The whole, you know, uh, I think even threatening the daughter with prosecution, threatening the family with prosecution, look, I'll be your best friend or your worst enemy, play the old mafia boss game. I think we're past that. And I think we're at um, a last resort place. And so last resort is public campaign um, in favor of Build Back Better, but if he pushes back even more, it becomes in favor of Build Back Better and against Joe Manchin. So in other words, there should be Democratic events in West Virginia. You should have all these signs and these placards that say, uh, West Virginia for Build Back Better. You have Joe Biden go there. You have Bernie Sanders go there. You have these, these rallies where you talk about the provisions of it. You get the media to cover it as much as possible. Clearly, Joe Biden had some degree of control over the media. He just met with the media and was like, hey, clean up your economic coverage. You guys got to do a better job on this. We just covered that story. Um, so Manchin already showed that this is a soft spot for him, that he's sensitive to this. So 
So, in other words, outflank him on the whole West Virginia Democrat thing, and you go to West Virginia, and you be the West Virginia Democrat, and you break everything down, show all the policies, do these rallies, hold the signs up, and if he gives you any pushback, then in one of those rallies, the claws come out. And you say, listen, there's one person who's standing in the way of, uh, you know, us getting this done. And he's not acting like a West Virginia Democrat. He's acting like a Wall Street Democrat. His name is Joe Manchin. And if it really comes to it and you have to put all the resources of the Democratic Party behind a primary challenger, do it. Now, look, I'm under no illusions. A primary challenger against Joe Manchin probably won't win. But what probably would happen is Manchin would win the primary and then a Republican would be Manchin. And you have to be willing to shoot the hostage in order to get the result. And that's something the Democrats are never willing to do. Well, it's time. Because he's had an insult to injury. He's spitting in your eye. Every step of the way, he's been dishonest about this stuff. Same with Kirsten Cinema. Um, now, I say all this, none of it's going to happen. None of it's going to happen. Because Biden doesn't really care that much about the specifics. And the left already caved with all the leverage they had. So we're either going to get no Build Back Better bill at all, which would prove the left right, or we'll get an even more watered-down Build Back Better bill, which will prove the left right. Either way, we're right. <laughs> and when I say we, I don't mean the congressional left, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the Justice Democrats, et cetera. I mean the actual left. This is what we warned every step of the way. We were proven correct every step of the way. I told you, either there's going to be no Build Back Better bill at all, or they're going to weaken it, and then pass that. Weaken it even more than it's already been weakened. It's already down to, what, $1.9 trillion when before it was 3.5? And they dropped it again, and then they dropped it again. They'll drop it again, or nothing will pass at all. So that's where we are, uh, well played by all the idiots in the Democratic Party. And Manchin is just tap dancing on your grave now. How's it feel? Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez uh, was doing live stream the other day. And um, look at this from Vice News. This is interesting. On Monday, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez clarified on Instagram that she does not hold any digital assets or tokens, including Bitcoin, and said she doesn't believe policymakers should be able to hold financial products like stocks. In June 2018, rules passed by the House Ethics Committee required members of Congress to disclose ownership of crypto asset holdings worth at least $1,000 in their annual disclosures. It should not come as a surprise, then, that the Democratic Socialist doesn't believe policymakers should be able to hold financial assets in order to remain impartial. Quote, because we have access to sensitive information and upcoming policy, I do not believe members of Congress should hold or trade individual stock, and I choose not to hold any so I can remain impartial about policymaking. Ocasio-Cortez wrote on Instagram, answering a question about if she held any crypto. I also extend that to digital asset, assets and currencies, especially because I sit on the Financial Services Committee. So the answer is no, because I want to do my job as ethically and impartially as I can, she added. Um, so... That is what she's saying there is the most obvious thing in the world, the most obvious thing in the world. And unfortunately, there are not many people who share that sentiment in Congress because they want to get paid, son. So let me give you a few examples as to just how correct she is in saying this. In March 2020, uh, Diane Feinstein, Kelly Leffler, Richard Burr, and Jim Inhofe they were accused of using non-public information about the coronavirus pandemic to dump stocks ahead of the anticipated panic sell-off, which came to pass. So in other words, all these powerful senators got news and word in a briefing. Look, this COVID thing is worse than you think. It's 
worse than you think. It's a pandemic. It's going to be a global pandemic. It's going to shock the market. It's probably going to be a huge downturn. So I'm just telling you, do with that information whatever you will. And then all these guys, these criminals, turned around, dumped stock so that they didn't lose money. And they did it because of insider information. That should be illegal. But more importantly, they shouldn't be allowed to hold stock in the first place because there are massive conflicts of interest. I'll give you another example. Tom Price, who was a Republican congressperson, I believe, of Georgia, he was picked for Trump to be head of like Health and Human Services or something like that. He, was, he invested in a medical device company before pushing a bill that would have given a massive subsidy to that same medical device company, therefore making him much wealthier. Total conflict of interest, total self-dealing, total corruption, and he got away with it. He got away with it. Um, Unusual Whales, which features um, financial tools that track large stock uh, and unusual options flow movements, they published a brief history last year looking at semiconductor bills that were proposed but never passed in Congress. Many of the bills only had co-sponsors that stood to benefit financially from the legislation self-dealing, conflict of interest, corruption. Nancy Pelosi, her husband just made $5.3 million investing in big tech based on information from Pelosi and Congress about how this uh, anti-monopoly legislation was toothless. This antitrust bill was toothless. So he took that information, made $5.3 million with it because he knew the stocks would spike when the business world got the word that this antitrust bill was toothless. This sort of stuff happens all the time, all the time. The business world, the corporate world, the stock world, and politicians are like this. And that's one of the biggest problems we have in this country. It goes, it's right up there with money in politics and campaign finance and how they take all their money from corporations and billionaires and then represent them. Here, they make decisions. They're always going to prop up the stock market. They're always going to prop up the businesses because they have personal stake in them. So not only is AOC right, this should be codified into law immediately. You shouldn't be able to own stock. Look, I'll go a step further, and maybe some of you will disagree with this. I don't know. I have no problem paying them even more money, but not allowing them to own stock. I'll raise the congressional salary to whatever, 300 grand. But you have to be a public servant, and also no revolving door. You can't go be a lobbyist afterwards. We'll make it worth your while to be a public servant, but you have to be a public servant not a corporate cook. So she's 100% right. I don't care what the investments are, shouldn't be allowed. President shouldn't be allowed to own businesses. You know, I mean, it's crazy. Trump was, he pretended like, oh, I put all my money in a blind trust. Bullshit. He was still making money hand over fist, if that's the saying. I don't know if that's the saying. He took $300,000 from Saudi Arabia through his D.C. hotel as president and gave him a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. That should be allowed? Fucking Jimmy Carter had to sell his peanut farm out of fear that it could be used for some sort of corrupt dealing with a foreign government. We got to clean up the system, man. AOC's right. Now, look, we beat up on her all the time when she's wrong, and she's wrong a decent amount, and I'll continue to do that when she's wrong. But here she's right, and we need legislation on this immediately. All right. So there is a silent catastrophe and tragedy 
that's going on right now in Afghanistan. Let me tell you about it. New York Times says, facing economic collapse, Afghanistan is gripped by starvation. An estimated 22.8 million people, 22.8 million, more than half the country's population are expected to face potentially life-threatening food insecurity this winter. Many are already on the brink of catastrophe. So, um, how did this come about? Well, according to an analysis by the United Nations World Food Program and Food and Agriculture Organization, of those 22.8 million, 8.7 million are already nearing famine. That's the worst stage of food crisis. This is as a direct result of U.S. sanctions. I'll break it down further. They say in the article, practically overnight, billions of dollars in foreign aid that propped up the previous Western-backed government vanished. And U.S. sanctions on the Taliban isolated the country from the global financial system paralyzing Afghan banks and impending relief work by humanitarian organizations. Across the country, millions of Afghans, from day laborers to doctors and teachers, have gone months without steady or any income. The price of food and other basic goods have soared beyond the reach of many families. Emaciated children and anemic mothers have flooded into the malnutrition wards of hospitals, many of those facilities, bereft of medical supplies that donor aid once provide. Compounding its economic woes, the country is confronting one of the worst droughts in decades. The wheat harvest is 25% below average now. So the big thing here, Western-backed government sanctions, U.S. sanctions on the Taliban, it's actually hurting the citizens and the civilians in Afghanistan, and particularly how the country is isolated from the global financial system now, which was an active decision made by the Biden administration. So... To give you a little more, the World Bank, which includes the United States, this was their token gesture when they heard about the news, 22 million people starving, 8.7 million famine. When they heard about that news, the U.S., this is what happened. This is astounding. The World Bank, which includes the United States, moved to free up $280 million in frozen donor funding for the World Food Program and UNICEF. Hmm, Good. Still, the sum is just a portion of the $1.5 billion frozen by the World Bank amid pressure from the United States Treasury after the Taliban took control. In other words, we have the ability to free up the capital to prevent the famine and the 22 million people from starving, but instead we go, let me give you a little taste. Instead of the 1.5 billion, here's 280 million. Make do with that. In the article, they explain how all the hospitals are overrun with starving children with their bones showing and shit, They're dying in slow motion. And the main culprit, the U.S. sanctions, particularly, because, look, I have no problem saying, hey, we shouldn't subsidize them. Fine, fair enough. But what I do have a problem saying is sanction them and isolate them from the global financial system. So, in other words, others can't even help them if they wanted to. They're totally isolated from the global financial system because Joe Biden and his team decided to press a fucking button. Now, why would he do this? You're thinking, why would he do this? He doesn't want to give the Republicans an optics victory where they can go around on Fox News and say, Joe Biden's giving the Taliban billions of dollars. He supports the Taliban. Taliban Joe. That's the whole reason he's willing to sit there and let 22 million Afghans starve. Guys, by the end of this, you may have literally millions of corpses. That would be way higher death toll than the entire war. This actually reminds me of the... the 90s, or the I think it was the 90s, the sanctions that were put on Iraq, where people were starving, and hundreds of thousands of 
of people died, including children. The U.S. did the same thing to Iraq. Now we're doing it to Afghanistan. Look, I'm fair. I gave Joe credit for pulling out of Afghanistan. But if you can't do the obvious thing here and allow them to have connection to the world financial system, this is arguably worse than the war because more people are going to fucking die. More innocent people. So it's not even arguable, actually. It's worse than the war. It's all because Joe felt slighted that, well, the Taliban took over and they took over so quickly. I look like a fool because I said I didn't think that was going to happen. And now he's afraid of giving the Republicans a talking point of Joe's helping the Taliban, which is total bullshit. The sanctions are only hurting Afghan civilians. But they don't care because it's more about optics. This is a war crime. This is a fucking war crime. And they need to reverse it immediately. And if not, it's already ugly, but it's going to get much, much uglier. All right, final story of the day. President Trump went on Newsmax and talked about his new social media company that he's starting and how there's a merger between a social media company and some other company. It's called like Truth Social or something like that. Um, He spoke to Sean Spicer and makes a hilarious claim here. I want to get to the book and what's in it, but there is some breaking news coming out right now. California Congressman Devin Nunes, a strong supporter of yours. I was there early on when he was a stalwart fighting against that Russian collusion uh, hoax, is rumored to be joining your new media company. By the way, the SEC apparently, according to other reports, is already looking at that company. So can you comment on, on Devin Nunes's role and the SEC? Well, I don't know anything about the SEC. I do know that Devin is fantastic, and I guess we just put out a release, and the release says that he'll be coming on. And, you know, this is just a continuation of witch hunts. Anything you do, uh, they want to look at it. They look at it. They don't look at themselves. They don't look at Hunter. They don't look at anybody. All they do is look at Republicans. Devin is a fantastic guy. I think uh, that he will do a, an incredible job. If our side doesn't have a voice, eventually uh, you're not going to have, you're going to end up with pure communism. It's a disgrace what's going on, but you're going to end up with a communistic, a communist nation. And so, uh, Devin, we just put out the release on Devin. We're very proud of that. We're proud of him. And uh, I think it's got a chance uh, of being a very important uh, day, actually. I think it's going to be a very important day. The way he talks is always going to make me laugh. Like, he just meanders into an area where he doesn't know what he's talking about anymore, and he just fills it in with generalities. I think uh, it's going to be a very important uh, day, actually. It's going to be a very important day. Day? You weren't talking about you were talking about your social media company and Devin Nunes. We were talking about the day for it. Anyway, okay. Uh, so, God, look, it has to be said. Yes, I think Donald Trump's the favorite for 2024. Biden's half dead and polling at 38%. Kamala and Mayor Peter, the heirs apparent, and they're polling worse than Biden. And Democrats are, aren't delivering on shit right now. So I think Trump is the favorite. He's still got the Republican Party by the balls. But it has to be said. Homeboy lost not just a step. He lost like three steps. In 2016, I'm telling you, go back and watch his closing ad for 2016 Put aside your negative feelings for Trump. We all have them, or and reasonable people have them. Um, but watch that closing ad in 2016. It was a good ad. It was a strong ad. And it, there was a lot of, like, fake populism in there, and you know, I'm going to revive America and all this stuff. And um, Compared to his closing ad in 2020, his closing ad in 2020 was pathetic. Uh, and then now, how he's talking now. Like, what are you talking about? 
it's pure communism because the FEC, SEC is doing a reasonable investigation. Let me explain that to you. So the Securities and Exchange Commission is investigating the merger of the Trump media company and the technology group and Digital World Acquisition Corp. Now, the reason they're doing that is because the Digital World Acquisition Corp is a special purpose acquisition company. Which, so they're an SPAC, and that basically means they exist only to help private companies sidestep many of the um, legal and financial hurdles that have to be overcome before a company is taken public. So it's basically like a company that does legal shortcuts to get you to where you want to be to approve a merger, okay, and to go public. So it's just, it's a standard routine SEC investigation into what's going on there. Now you get, well, oh, it's Trump, so Trump is getting extra scrutiny. I can make the exact opposite argument. That motherfucker gets away with everything. Everybody knows he gets away with everything. He got away with uh, a wanton violations of the emoluments clause. I told you, how many times did I tell you? He took hundreds of thousands of dollars from Saudi Arabia through his hotel, and then he turned around and gave them a multi-billion dollar weapons deal. That's direct payment from a foreign government and then doing what they want. Jared Kushner took millions of dollars from an Israeli bank, and then Trump gives Israel everything they want. The number of times you violated the emoluments clause are endless. Uh, the number of sketchy business things that went on are endless. And Homeboy's still walking around out there like he's fine, because he is. Walked away without a scratch. Russiagate, granted, Russiagate was total bullshit, but he walked away from that without a scratch. If anything, it helped him. So this idea, oh, they're all coming after me. Dog, you get away with everything. You stood there on January 6th before the Capitol was stormed and was like, we should all go to the Capitol and do something about this. And then you got out of it. Now, he got out of it because he talked out of both sides of his mouth. and was like, when it got too rough, he was like, all right, go home, but you're beautiful people, and I love you, and I understand why you're doing it, but go home. But, like, he gets away with everything, and he's like, they always, they always get me on stuff. Nobody gets you on dick. The only thing is uh, when he was, like, he had to pay out millions of dollars because Trump University was a fraud, and so he settled with them because it was a fraud. Anyway, I digress. But um, he calls it pure communism. What? <laughs> what the fuck does communism have to do with a... Routine SEC investigation into your shitty media company, which raised a billion dollars in like 17 minutes. It's got nothing to do... God, it, that's what I'm saying. He lost three steps. Because now he's, he's gone full Fox News grandpa. And as you all know about the Fox News grandpa, they'll just drop some shit on you that you're like, what? In other words, there's no more in, like instinct for common sense. And you could argue Trump, even though he was also unhinged and part Fox News grandpa in 2016, he did have that instinct for common sense, like, I'm going to keep your jobs here, and Hillary's not. And everybody's like, yeah! And he's like, oh, good, I, okay, that worked. Now he's like, the SEC is doing this, it's pure communism. This is, this is pure communism. It's going to be a great day. Pure communism. <laughs> he just says shit. It's just verbal diarrhea. Anyway, you get the gist. He's a mess. This is silly. There you have it. All right, guys, we're done. I love you, baby. I'll talk to you soon. Great episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends this week. Freddie DeBoer's on. Um, I will see y'all soon. Have a good one. Peace.